0: It's the DKB Radio Hour. I'm Spencer Cannon. This episode is brought to you by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and is accredited by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. Recent advances in medical therapy have changed HIV infection from a death sentence to a serious but manageable chronic disease. HIV infection cannot yet be cured. But infected people who receive appropriate medical care can now expect to live many, many years. But getting there can be challenging, especially for people struggling with addiction in addition to HIV. Appropriate treatment begins with screening and diagnosis, overcoming barriers to treatment and adherence, and collaboration between caregivers. Just as important are efforts to prevent HIV infection in the first place, and we have new tools that can help in this effort as well. On our show today, bringing the science of HIV treatment to the addiction medicine setting. To receive CME or CEU credit, visit www.starthiv.dkbmed.com. Recently, doctors Glenn Treisman, Eugene Meyer III, professor of psychiatry and medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and Kathleen Brady, distinguished university professor at the Medical University of South Carolina, discussed this issue at the 2017 American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM conference in New Orleans. Let's begin with Dr. Treisman. In this segment, he introduces a bright young man named Jason who struggled with addiction to opioids. Jason grew up in a upper middle class
1: home. He was in the middle of his family sib ship. He was one of those kids who always kind of got whatever he wanted. He was gifted in many ways. While he was in high school, he had done a lot of partying and the drinking, but also pills. And what he said was he would go to parties and there would be a bowl of pills on the table, and everybody would bring pills from their parents' medicine cabinet and pour them in. And they called it the candy bowl and they would grab a few things and try them out. And he took all kinds of stuff. In college, he continued to do this and continued to party quite heavily, but noticed that the drugs that made him feel best were opiates. And he got to be able to recognize opiates in the candy bowl and would pick out particularly oxy and other opiates, oxycodone, oxycontin, Percocets, and said that those were the things that gave him this sense of inner peace that he thought was particularly delicious said was the sort of the best thing he was doing okay in school and then had what the worst thing that could happen to a kid like him he had a an injury and went to the doctor and the doctor gave him oxycodone and sort of said take what you need and he did took what he needed which was all of it and very quickly escalated his dose and the doctor just kept giving him more and more and he said he had terrible pain he had chronic pain and the doctor gave him more and more narcotics and he said it was out of control right away He said that before that he'd you know had to get the medicine get the drugs but now there was this doctor encouraging him to take more and so he was taking more so the doctor said pain is a bad thing you shouldn't be in pain and he wasn't after a while doctor was replaced with a new physician and when he went to the health service to get more opiates they said we don't think you need these and cut him off this was a terrible problem but he knew a lot of kids who used opiates and he went around and got opiates from various friends and after a while, started to hang around with a group of people who were heavy opiate users and began using heroin. When they couldn't get opiates, when opiates weren't available, they used heroin. And most of these kids were college friends. And he thought, it's going to be okay. These are my college friends. And there was no big deal. He shared needles, but shared needles with other college kids and didn't think it was any big deal. And then sort of realized that his grades were falling off. He was slumping and things were really falling apart. That was a really bad thing for him and thought he better get help. He always thought he was the kind of person who would never get addicted, but realized he was addicted and went to a treatment center, was admitted, detoxified, got treatment, came back to school, relapsed, went back, got treated again, and finally it stuck and he got sober. He was somewhat mortified by how badly he had done, but also realized that addiction was a serious problem and so was chronic pain and realized that he really wanted to help people with this same problem and decided to go to medical school. So he did a post-baccalaureate program, worked really
0: hard, got great grades, and applied to medical school. Jason may feel familiar to many of you, a young person who gravitated toward prescription drug abuse, first as an occasional diversion, then following an opioid prescription for chronic pain as a full-blown addiction. Like so many others, his drug-seeking behavior eventually led him from pills to heroin. We know that sharing needles, as Jason did, is a risk factor for HIV transmission. But how great is this risk? And how else does addiction affect HIV? To tell us more about the interaction between HIV and addiction, and particularly opioid addiction, we turn to Dr. Kathleen Brady and her talk from the ASAM stage.
2: In terms of the role of substance use, one of the things we know for certain is that current alcohol and drug abuse are associated with poor treatment outcomes and incomplete courses of either HIV or HCV treatment. Addiction is also associated with viral resistance and increased mortality. Collaborative treatment, and by that I mean collaboration between the individuals who are doing the drug abuse treatment, the drug abuse treatment setting, and primary care or specialty practices where these infectious diseases are treated. When there's collaboration between these treatment settings, both for testing, prevention efforts, as well as treatment, it really improves outcomes. For opiate addiction, substitution therapy is by far the best-studied intervention, and it has been shown to have improved outcomes for both HIV and HCV infection.
0: So clearly, collaboration between providers is key. But just how much does injection drug use contribute to new HIV infection? Dr. Brady explains.
2: In terms of injection drug use and HIV, injection drug use is responsible for about 6 to 8% of HIV transmission. In fact, the highest percentage of HIV transmission is from men having sex with other men. 24% of the transmission is through heterosexual sex. 81% of new HIV cases were in the 20 to 24 age range. So this is a very young population becoming newly infected.
0: Dr. Brady tells us that HIV is no longer the disease we may have thought it was 30 years ago. Tragically, and despite decades of education, young people are now the face of the epidemic. And although injection drug use does not account for most HIV transmission... It broadens the pool of infected individuals and puts yet more people at risk for transmission through sex, drug use, or other means. How we got here is something that addiction specialists know too well. A common pathway is the widespread use of opioids for the treatment of chronic pain, despite the availability of other effective therapies. We called Dr. Mark Fishman, Medical Director of Maryland Treatment Centers and asked what clinicians can do to address HIV in the setting of addiction.
3: So it is so important these days for us to be doing really universal screening so that we can get early detection and case detection, diagnosis, and early treatment for HIV. This is very important, especially in the addiction treatment setting, because of the high-risk population that we treat in addiction treatment treatment settings. So the CDC has called for universal screening of all persons at least once and for high-risk individuals at least once a year, and our patients really are all high-risk. Remember that we're not just talking about injection use as the primary means of transmission, although that's certainly an important one. We also don't always know whether patients have used needles because there's stigma and they may not want to be honest about it or it may be past needle use, not current needle use. But remember men having sex with men is the biggest transmission route in the United States and heterosexual transmission is also a very big transmission route and among our patients, the intermingling of patients with high-risk sexual behavior is a very, very high risk factor. So we should be screening everybody. Now that doesn't happen as much as it ought to and there's a variety of reasons which we've discussed, but we need to do a better job. So all in all, every reason to do it, we should be having universal screening, and we need to do everything we can to train and encourage the addiction treatment provider community to do a better job with this. It is so vital.
0: So for those of you working in addiction clinics, remember, the CDC recommends screening people at risk, at least annually. Other adults and adolescents should be screened at least once. Let's return to Dr. Treisman at ASAM, where he described his patient Jason's experience with HIV screening.
1: So Jason knew he was in a lot of trouble, decided he needed to go get treated, and went to an addiction inpatient program for detoxification treatment. He did very well the first time, but did relapse, and then went back for a second visit and was detoxified a second time, and that one seemed to stick. Now, one of the things that came out of that was at no time during either admission for detoxification did they talk about screening or testing for HIV or hepatitis C, and he didn't get testing. At the time, he said it wasn't surprising to him because he was a college student and all the people he used drugs with were college students and his friends, and he didn't think he was at any risk, and apparently neither did the people at the
0: addiction program. It's unfortunate but true that addiction medicine specialists, like other clinicians, do not always follow current guidelines for HIV screening, even for high-risk patients. But why aren't patients like Jason being screened? From the ASAM stage, Dr. Brady addresses this question.
2: So why would that be? We've got these pretty clear recommendations. But in fact, there are a number of barriers to HIV screening. And these barriers are multifactorial and complicated. And so because of that, you really need a multi-pronged strategy to overcome these barriers. And These barriers occur at several levels. There's patient-level barriers provider-level barriers, and then systemic-level barriers, such as access, costs, and some policies and, and legislature that in some ways can work against screening. So why do we start with the patient-level barriers? Stigma is a big one. These are stigmatized illnesses. HIV remains, although I think public awareness has gone a long way in terms of public awareness, it still remains a disorder that people are ashamed To talk about having. And because of that, they have fear in discussing this with the provider. So, fear about asking for testing. And this fear may be based in a couple of things. They may be worried that if they are HIV positive, there's going to be some discrimination against them because of their status. They may be worried that even asking for the test implies something about them or their lifestyle that they don't want their physician to know. And it also, many people are unaware of the new HIV treatments and view diagnosis as a death sentence. And so, this lack of knowledge on the basis of patients in a number of levels really makes them reluctant to discuss HIV with their providers. Often, they're unaware of the risk factors for HIV. They're unaware of the confidentiality of their results of testing. And they're unaware of improved and accessible treatment, unaware that the diagnosis of HIV is really no longer a death sentence at all.
0: Patient related barriers are only part of the problem. Healthcare providers sometimes have their own set of barriers that get in the way of screening and care. We'll hear from Dr. Brady that those barriers can vary depending on the setting.
2: The barriers in substance use treatment settings may be very different. In many substance abuse treatment settings, there are no medical providers or very few only coming intermittently, maybe once a week. And so often the providers in substance use treatment centers, the counselors, really do feel not capable of addressing the issues, answering the questions, and really don't have the tools that they need to provide the testing.
0: Those barriers described by Dr. Brady are not indestructible. We must and need to be sure our patients are screened and, if necessary, referred for treatment for HIV. Here's Dr. Fishman, who discusses the importance of overcoming barriers and how to do so.
3: You know, it is true. There are a number of barriers, both at the patient level and at the provider level. So it's really important that we help people understand why this is so good for them. They may not understand that they're at risk for reasons other than the obvious. Lots of people don't even know about heterosexual transmission. And so, again, educating patients is very important. There are provider-level barriers as well. Boy, I don't have to tell you guys that as an addiction provider, we're busy, we don't have enough time, we are under-resourced, there's never enough to be able to give what we need to give to all the patients. So lack of resources, lack of time is certainly an issue. It may seem to addiction counselors and providers that they're not medical folks, they're not infectious disease specialists. This isn't central to the mission, but I think it is important that we shift the paradigm to see that this really ought to be a routine part of substance use disorder treatment, that even if you're not a physician, even if you're not a subspecialist physician in infectious diseases, we have a part to play. So this education and training, getting addiction counselors and other providers comfortable to be able to have these conversations with patients, just to be able to simply get them to be willing to do the assessment and the screening, do the case detection, and then, if positive, to encourage them to go on and seek further care.
0: Think about your own practice for a moment. Which of these barriers do you recognize, and how have you responded to them in the past? Remember that early detection and treatment can improve outcomes and limit risk for transmission. This brings us to an important point, which is how to stop the spread of HIV. Here to explain is Dr. Treisman from ASAM in New Orleans.
1: So how can we stop HIV transmission? Clean needles, safer sex, opiate substitution therapy, that is putting people who are using injectable opiates on suboxone and methadone, substance abuse treatment in general, 12-step programs, uh, inpatient detoxification, rehabilitation, psychiatric treatment, including treatment of the comorbid conditions that drive substance abuse and drive high-risk behavior, And then treatment is prevention and PrEP. And PrEP has been shown to be effective in decreasing transmission of HIV in several different studies that are quite important.
0: You heard Dr. Treisman mention something called PrEP. PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And this is the new tool we mentioned at the beginning of the show that can help prevent HIV infection for certain high-risk patients. PrEP is a specific fixed-dose combination of medications tenofovir, and m that can be taken by people who do not have HIV but engage in behaviors that put them at high risk for acquiring HIV. Let's listen as Dr. Treisman discusses the efficacy of PrEP in clinical trials from the stage at ASAM.
1: So most of the studies of PrEP have been used in HIV serodiscordant couples. So when the one partner has HIV and one partner does not, and the most successful trial of PrEP Reduce the risk by 92%, probably would have been 100% in the people who took it correctly. So it works if the patient takes it, and you should know your patients. This is not a drug that works from a vending machine. In the unsuccessful trials of PrEP, mostly the drug was given out without much connection between the doctor and the patient. And in those circumstances, people tend not to take the medicine, and it tends not to work. How about people with substance use disorders? People who are using currently, does PrEP work? There's only one good trial, but quite remarkably, it's a good trial. It's a randomized placebo-controlled trial with adequate size, which is, in a population of people who are substance users, an amazing accomplishment. There were 2,413 participants, and 1,204 got tenofovir, and 1,209 got placebo. In the tenofovir group, 17 became infected, in the placebo group, 33, That's a reduction of half, and it was statistically significant. This is quite a remarkable study, because people don't usually like to study substance-using patients. And this patient showed that even in a group of people who are actively using at the beginning of the study, PrEP is effective.
0: So, studies show that PrEP can prevent HIV infection in high-risk populations, including people who inject drugs. Here's Dr. Michael Sack professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, who describes how preventative measures like PrEP work.
4: So the trick here is to identify people who are at high risk, bring them into care, document that they do not have HIV infection by a blood test, check them for some general safety labs like for creatinine and liver function, and as well as their blood counts, and then counsel them on how to appropriately use PrEP and to also advise them to continue to use condoms, not only to help prevent HIV, but to reduce the transmission of other sexually transmitted diseases such as syphilis.
0: To illustrate the effect of interventions such as PrEP on an ongoing outbreak or epidemic, Dr. Sagg talks about a recent example. Here, how an astute physician who alerted the CDC helped to avert what could have been an even bigger health crisis.
4: In late December 2014, a Scott County physician, this is Scott County, Indiana, in a small community named Austin, started noticing two to three cases of HIV that was diagnosed that had not been seen before. Previously, Scott County only had five total HIV-infected people, and now they're seeing three. Over the course of December and January, another four or five individuals were identified, and these folks were referred to the state health department. By February, eight more infections were identified, and by March, the CDC was called in. The HIV transmission was almost exclusively through intravenous drug use, primarily involving oxymorphone, which is an opioid that would be ground up and then injected. Injection practices were multi-generational, oftentimes occurring in the same family with 2 to 20 injections per day, and up to 20 needle-sharing partners might share the same needle. By the time March of 2015 had arrived, this is now three months into this, there were up to 55 new cases of HIV that were diagnosed, and this number ultimately expanded to 188 total cases out of 513 contacts who are identified as possibly being exposed. That's a 38% positivity rate among the tested contacts. The CDC, after being called in, reached out to the Indiana University Ryan White Clinic with Diane Janowitz, and Diane came down and actually started opening up a clinic that began to solve the problem. They set up what's called Austin's One Stop Shop, which did HIV and HCV testing, collected vital records, driver's license and state IDs were issued there, insurance enrollment and immunizations, kind of a comprehensive health and services community outreach center. They also provided care coordination and needle exchange programs, very importantly. And when they started doing that, the incidence of new HIV infections dropped away, and by April of 2016, no further cases really had been transmitted. So a very effective intervention that worked extremely well. So in summary, this is an example of how the emerging or really exploding opioid epidemic has borne out in one small county. And southeastern Indiana, and how rapid intervention and recognition of these new cases led to control of what otherwise might have been a much worse epidemic.
0: Dr. Sag showed us how preventative measures like syringe exchange programs and PrEP might have been able to prevent a local epidemic, such as what occurred in Scott County. And studies indicate that PrEP can reduce transmission even among people who inject drugs. Based on these studies, The CDC recommends PrEP for people who are HIV-negative but have high risk for HIV infection. This includes gay or bisexual men who have had anal sex without a condom or who have been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection in the last six months. Men who have sex with both men and women. Heterosexual men and women who do not regularly use condoms during sex with high-risk partners of unknown HIV status and people who have injected drugs in the past six months and have shared needles or been in drug treatment in the past six months. Now here's Dr. Treisman again from ASAM to help us understand how these data and recommendations apply in clinical practice.
1: If it works, why are we not giving to our patients? Well, it failed in some studies due to poor adherence, but we also don't want to pay for lots of things that we know work. Addiction treatment, opiate substitution, clean needles, rehabilitation, integrated care, and treatment of psychiatric comorbidity. We know these things work and it's very difficult to get them paid for. And PrEP is gonna be similar in that our patients are gonna be discriminated against and people aren't gonna wanna spend the money to give them PrEP. Current arguments against PrEP include poor adherence can lead to infection and even resistant viral infection, expense, medical risk and burdening of monitoring, fears about people sharing medications and selling it, although this turns out not to be true. People did not sell their PrEP drugs in any of the studies people looked at. And learning how to do it and getting the word out to patients. Things that will make things better include resources, psychiatric care, and integrated treatment will mean less failure with PrEP. And therefore, if you have people who are in treatment who are already in treatment, PrEP is a better idea rather than a worse idea. So one of the things you might say is, I get it. How do I do PrEP? You need to give patients a thorough education about the need for adherence. You need to discuss safe sex because syphilis epidemic and other STDs are running wild, particularly on the West Coast, but through the whole country. And people who prep might think that they don't need to practice barrier resistance, but they do. You need to test for hepatitis. Even though you'll be treating in part hepatitis B, you need to test people for hepatitis before you give them prep to make sure that you're not going to actually make it harder to treat their hepatitis. You need to monitor for adherence and for renal function. And there's only one approved drug. It causes nausea and relatively few other side effects. And it's easy to use. There's only one dose, there's only one drug. So education for the physicians and the practitioners is pretty easy. Poor adherence to PrEP can cause antiviral resistance. And FTC and 3TC have overlapping resistance. So if you lose FTC, you also lose 3TC. However, there's lots of other choices. Tenofovir and TAF have overlapping resistance. But this is rare even in people who develop resistance. So people who develop resistance, it's almost always the FTC side of the coin, and tenofovir tends to continue to work. TAF is not approved for use in PrEP. You're going to hear more about TAF in the next lecture, but TAF is a form of tenofovir that has less side effects but is not approved yet for PrEP and probably shouldn't
0: be used as the studies are not done. Dr. Treisman mentioned several drugs, FTC, 3TC, and TAF, that are used in preventing and treating HIV. You will hear more about these later. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the DKB Radio Hour. To receive CME or CEU credit, take the post-test at www.starthiv.dkbmed.com. Please join us for part two of this series in which we'll discuss current options for the management of HIV. I'm host Spencer Cannon, thanking you for your time.